welcome back to Never Lick the Spoon, the podcast from the Institute of Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Isabella von Holstein, and in this series, I'm going to continue to bring you stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the big challenges facing our planet. I'm also going to highlight some of the great people involved in science and technology across Imperial and further afield. episode we were finding out about microbes in soil from Imperial's campus. This time we're finding out about DNA in soil, not on Imperial's campus, but in coconut palm plantations in Ivory Coast. Palm agriculture has a bad reputation for using unsustainable practices. We think of the clearing in recent decades of thousands of acres of rainforest for palm oil plantations in Southeast Asia with the consequent loss of biodiversity. The many coexisting plant, animal, insect and microbe species of the original ecosystem are replaced with a much simpler habitat based on a plant monoculture, which is much more vulnerable to extreme weather events such as drought or storms. Currently in Africa, palm production, typically for coconut, is industrialising, so the race is on to find more sustainable ways to grow coconuts, which will maintain ecosystem resilience as much as possible. I talked to two PhD students at Imperial who were involved in a project using DNA sampling to explore biodiversity in coconut agriculture and its links to ecosystem resilience and also economic resilience for farmers. Yeah, so I'm Ben Roberts. I am doing my PhD uh, at Imperial at the moment and I'm based um, out in the countryside at a place called Silwood Park, um, which is where we do all of the kind of life sciences research, all of the zoology stuff. Uh, We've got our genomics lab out there. Yeah, and um, I'm Alvaro Royal Bellot. I'm a PhD student here at the Center for Environmental Policy. So I'm based in South Kensington. So can you tell me about the project? What was it that took you out to Ivory Coast? Yeah, of course. So the the project itself forms a small part of kind of a wider project, which is all around palm sustainability and particularly coconut palm sustainability. So the project itself is Um, looking at the relationship between palm management and biodiversity and particularly functional biodiversity. So we've got a experimental setup out in Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa where we've got a load of coconut palms which are split into different plots uh, with different genetic crosses of the palms themselves. So we've got different varieties from around the world Um, and also the plots themselves are managed differently. So we've got things like differing levels of native understory vegetation. We've got some which are maintained as like an intensive monoculture. Sorry, for the benefit of the tape, I'm doing loads of hand gestures here, which probably are extremely unhelpful. But we've got our kind of baseline plot is an intensive monoculture, which is essentially just sand, no no native understory underneath the underneath the trees. And then it, it kind of goes up incrementally to kind of an agroforestry, which is a system where you've got uh, tree crops. So for instance, our coconut palms uh, planted kind of in a matrix of natural vegetation. So the understory would be at overhead height. And the idea is that we go into these plots um, and we sample the functional biodiversity uh, to see how it responds to management decisions, particularly kind of management decisions kind of concerning the understory vegetation. I'm struggling to imagine what a palm plantation looks like. Palms are huge, aren't they? Yeah, so oil palms are actually uh, a little bit a little bit smaller uh, than coconut palms. So they're generally around 60 feet high, uh, whereas coconut palms can get kind of 20 feet, 30 feet taller, so around 80 or 90 feet. Presumably because they're so high, that means quite a lot of sun can get 
through the canopy and to the soil. And that means you could you that that's what you call you're calling understory, right? It's the stuff that can grow in all the land that, that, that these skinny trees are not using. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the really big kind of driver and push behind why tree crops have such huge potential for biodiversity, like agrobiodiversity conservation. Because if you imagine, say, a field full of wheat or a particular cereal, there's not much space in which to introduce native vegetation and habitat complexity. Uh, but if you think about these kind of coconuts or royal palms or rubber trees, for instance, uh, you've got all of this space kind of in the in the plots in which to introduce habitat complexity. The idea is that that habitat complexity will then have knock-on effects and really boost soil biodiversity and above ground biodiversity. The samples that we've got at the moment were a natural understory, so they weren't an agro understory. So that's just for looking at the impacts of the understory on the biodiversity. But then the next step on is looking at an intercrop understory. For instance, you could, rather than maintaining natural vegetation underneath the palms, you could grow cacao or cassava or something like that to increase habitat complexity and then obviously you get that secondary revenue source for the for the landowners. Um, and you've said several times now you've said functional biodiversity could you I think most people know roughly what biodiversity is but what's functional biodiversity? So functional it's a really good question because functional biodiversity actually has a couple of different definitions depending on exactly what you're talking about but I am using it here in the sense of biodiversity which is particularly contributing to ecosystem functioning. So kind of classic examples would be things like pollinating insects um, which have actually key kind of economic and kind of functional roles in the ecosystem. So things like insects which break down wastes, uh, fungi which contribute to soil fertility, that sort of thing, rather than kind of intrinsic biodiversity which is really nice to have uh, but maybe not a huge contributor to uh, production. And that'll help you grow more coconuts, at least not fewer coconuts. Exactly. That is that. That's yeah. the idea is you, you it can't be associated with a yield drop. Otherwise, it was would never take on in terms of food security. But if we can boost functional biodiversity to an extent that the ecosystem services provided by maintaining that understory mean we still reach the same yield and production. Along with those sustainability benefits of less chemical input, that sort of thing, that's that's really quite exciting. And I seem to remember from what you wrote in the project, you looked at three different management structures. There was, well, for a start, you took a sample of actual rainforest to see what the baseline is. That was fun, yeah. <laughs> was it? Did you have to fight your way in with a machete or something? Uh, yeah, yeah, there was machetes involved. We didn't get too far into the forest. As soon as maybe like we went into maybe like 10 meters and there was a moment where like everyone just went really quiet. And literally, we were next to a massive bee's nest who, uh, yeah, if we had been a bit loud or, or something like that, it, would have, it wouldn't have been good. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. You're right. So how do you measure functional biodiversity? You can measure it in a variety of ways. So uh, a lot of people go into a, a plot and start measuring above ground biodiversity through things like insect trapping, camera traps to look at mammals. Uh, stuff like that. The way we're doing it is we go into a system and take soil samples and look at the DNA which has been shedded into that soil by uh, species which are using the plantations. So every, uh, kind of all taxa, all species which use a particular habitat shed DNA into that habitat which is then called environmental DNA. Uh, and if we can sequence that we can identify what taxa or what species sorry are using 
uh, those habitats. And also we can get a kind of a really clear picture of the, the microbiota, the, the microbial life, which is found in those habitats. And you're doing this in the soil, but, you know, it's also done in air and water. Air, but, water yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Actually, one, yeah, one that has actually, is starting to take off is just going into a place and taking air samples and uh, sequencing DNA, which is found in them. Because you, you never really think about it, but you, whenever you're walking along, you're walking through kind of a soup of DNA. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a slightly icky thought. Did you have to wear one of those white suits or was it just too hot? So we, we 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 weren't quite at the level of white suits. I think out there we would have probably passed out very very quickly from the heat. Um, I mean, t-shirt and shorts was bad enough. But actually, human human DNA isn't too much of a worry at the moment because the the way that the sequencing works, you use primers which target very specific parts of the metagenome to the genome that you find in the soil. So, for instance, we could design primers which target fungal groups, and obviously. I won't have regions of that of DNA which those primers combine to because I'm not terribly closely related to a fungus. While you were doing your sampling, like half of, of the work Ben does is is cleaning uh, the equipment, so you don't you know get extra DNA you don't want on it, and you don't get the DNA you uh, from like previous uh, samples you took. So like I went with him on the field a, a couple of days, and there was definitely a lot of cleaning. Uh, yeah. To get rid of DNA. <laughs> yeah, absolutely massive faff. Because if we went from a plot with absolutely no understory, took a soil sample with our with our Cora, and then went straight to a plot with loads of understory and with the same Cora, took a soil sample. There's DNA all over that equipment. So you're you, you're walking around the field with kind of huge tubs of bleach and ethanol and distilled water to just wipe down, wipe down and kill as much of the DNA as you, as you can. How big are your samples? Really quite small, actually. We uh, bring back about four grams of soil from each site to the UK. And that just shows the amount of DNA which is which is kind of just found in the environment. So we extracted the DNA uh, and I've started kind of the sequencing pipeline. So hopefully some sequencing results will start to appear in the next next couple of weeks. Obviously, we'll have to wait for that for actually any findings to kind of come about. But just based on the, the DNA extracts, you can incrementally see increased DNA as you go up that land use gradient. So the most intensive coconut plot has the least DNA and all the way up to the swamp rainforest, which has huge, huge amounts. Uh, and obviously that's just a very, very crude measure, uh, but maybe indicative of higher species abundance as you go less and less intensive, which is, which is promising, which is really promising. Building back biodiversity in an agricultural system is a form of ecosystem restoration. When I heard that term, I immediately thought that meant rewilding. So how does that apply to a functioning agricultural plantation? Ecosystem restoration is a really broad topic. It basically means it's like stopping degradation and building back, you know, ecosystem functionality, diversity, resilience. And, and you can take it from, you know, having an agricultural system where you do certain things that allow you to to bring some of the that diversity and functionality back to you know taking something a monoculture uh cutting it away and bringing back the ecosystem that used to be there in, in the beginning which would be kind of like the really um extreme edge of, of restoration in an agricultural context uh you would look at things that maintain and restore soil health 
instead of just like depleting it continuously. It's, it's that change of mentality from, okay, we can just degrade ecosystems and, and keep doing that uh, until they run out and then we move to, to somewhere else to, to a management that allows you to maintain the, the services you get from, from that ecosystem and, and even, you know, maybe like maybe even improve them. There's like a society for ecological restoration and they have this um, restoration continuum, which starts with little things like planting a tree in a city to bring more, more biodiversity to that ecosystem. That would be, you know, the epitome of human uh, disruption. Right. Uh, and then on the other end of the continuum, you would have your like rewildings or ecological restoration where you're trying to bring back what was there before with as much accuracy as you can. That probably be like ecological restoration and rewilding is more about putting all the pieces back and then let nature kind of like reorganize itself and, and start functioning again. And can we also talk about resilience? This is one of these words that people use all over the place these days. I think like at a basic level, resilience is like you get hit and how you get back up from from that or how damaged you are uh, after yeah. that perturbation. And I think for ecosystems, it's linked to biodiversity, to diversity within them, because if you have four pieces that work on pollination, you may be able to lose one and still get quite good functioning. But if you only have one pollinator and that pollinator gets hit, then you're toasted like yeah. there's not coming back from that. Well, I mean, it's just going to be like slower and and the damage is going to be bigger. And and you can think about it in terms of soil, for example. If like through your practices, what you're doing is like losing soil for uh, through erosion and losing uh, like organic matter. Uh, all you're doing is concocting the, per- the perfect recipe for whenever you, you have a drought your your soil is going to lose moisture way quicker than than another soil that has you know better organic material within it and and it's it's more robust i want to pull back a bit we talked about the the molecular aspect of things can i ask about the so since i'm working for imsi and we're molecular science and engineering i always need to ask about the engineering aspect of things and that's what's quite fun about this project is because unlike you know other projects we've got where we make somebody's trying to make a better battery or they're trying to do 3D printing or whatever. You know, this is not really engineering in the classical sense. And yet you do have the same sense of how can we make a system work for an awful lot of people? You know, there is that sense of scale up happening here as well. The the part the scaling part is going to be all about behavior change, right? If you've been growing coconuts the same way all your life, your granddad used to do the same the same kind of cropping uh, before as well. It's it's going to be a challenge to to overcome uh, those kind of like ways of doing things you do you, you have and and try something new. So there would have to be a lot of work around like how to bring people on board and and kind of and make them realize that this might be a uh, a better way of managing managing not only for the environment but also for them. It's such such an important point. Um, I think that a lot of, well, I, I've definitely been guilty on this in the past, is just getting really, really carried away with the genetics um, and completely burying my head in the um, in the sand. And actually, that's why it's so important that we're working so closely with social scientists, um, because you really need to you need to think about that side of things. 
and it actually has to make an impact in policy rather than doing well, what I think is some cool science like it's not really enough at this stage and you do need to work at getting it into policy. And that was Ben Roberts and Alvaro Roebeliot talking to me about their project. The project is part of a wider collaboration between Professor Vincent Savolainen of Imperial's Department of Life Sciences and Dr Tilly Collins from the Centre for Environmental Policy. That's it for this episode. Are you concerned about biodiversity loss? Perhaps you've changed your shopping habits to avoid non-certified palm oil or planted wildflowers in your back garden in order to encourage biodiversity on your doorstep. Or maybe what you're going to take away from this episode is the fact that you're constantly swimming through a soup of DNA. Hmm, perhaps an attractive idea in a forest. Not so much on the tube. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at imperial underscore imsy or email us on imsy at imperial.ac.uk. Until next time, take care and remember, Never lick the spoon.